WALT, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on camera for the inaugural Friday show of the Midnight Disease and coming to you on uh, the Sennheiser MKH 416, a shotgun microphone, customarily used for film shoots, although also repi, 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 uh, to have another pie. Uh, relied upon, is what I meant to say, by um, some voiceover artists, I think, for its particular vocal quality. I have selected it today because, as you can see and probably hear, um, I am recording this inaugural Friday show of The Midnight Disease, not in the moon cabin, but um, in a sort of ridiculous co-working space. Uh, and as you can see, this co-working space has decided to um, evoke an atmosphere by um, using some jungle wallpaper behind me that sort of looks like a, like a dank swamp that would be scary to escape from. So, <laughs> uh, not the same friendly confines as the moon cabin, but uh, hopefully the same friendly presence in your ears and now on your screens in the form of me, Sam. So, uh, this is the first Friday show of The Midnight Disease, and this is going to have a very different feel than the regular Wednesday interview-based episodes. There's not going to be a guest on the show today. It's just going to be me talking to you directly about something that has been on my mind a lot lately and that I'm wondering what you all think of. I want to say right off the top, I don't necessarily have a conclusion about this issue, but I do think it's something that's worth talking about and reflecting on amongst folks who do this kind of work or uh, from listeners to or readers of or viewers of this kind of work, because it's a really core element of this particular type of storytelling. What kind of storytelling am I talking about? I'm talking about long-form narrative nonfiction, which customarily is created through interviews with sources. Um, so the storyteller goes to sources who have intimate and specific knowledge of the real-life story that is being told, and their testimony forms the emotional and factual fabric of that story. So as a creator of that kind of story, you're in an interesting position. Because usually, if it's a good story, it's a story that hasn't been told before. And it's a story that gets into territory that might be somewhat sensitive to share about. In the case of Family Ghosts, we were often telling stories about secrets that families had kept for generations. Uh, oftentimes, these things were secrets because they involved betrayal or crime or just poor behavior of, of some intensely human form and the ripple effects of that behavior. And that kind of foundational ideology of that show was that if we could find a way to talk about these things and to narrativize them, to present them not just as isolated incidents, but as actions that were taken by the people who took them because of 
contextual factors in their lives that were beyond their control, if we could do that, we might be able to more properly appreciate what pushes someone to betray, what pushes someone to commit a crime, what pushes someone to um, steal a grandfather's corpse and hide it for 20 years, <laughs> just to pick a specific example. Um, and so as the storyteller of a story like that, I have this kind of weird job. I'm just using myself as an example here uh, because this is a personal experience that I want to talk about. But um, I would like to think that anybody who's ever tried to tell long-form narrative nonfiction uh, could see themselves in, in the function that I'm in, in this, this example. So in order to get a family member to tell one of those stories, you have to convince people in the family to trust you with their story which is an extraordinary thing to ask somebody to do, to ask them to sit without financial compensation, because it would be unethical to ask for financial, uh, to give financial compensation for somebody to tell a story like that. To ask this person to sit with you, likely for several hours at a time, likely on more than one occasion, likely to... Um, invite you into their home to have this conversation, uh, in some cases to share archival materials, photographs, diaries, journals um, that they've never shared with anybody else, in service of a story that you want to tell, potentially for your own financial reward. You know, I mean, I didn't make a fortune off of Family Ghosts, but I was lucky enough to be paid for it at various points. Um, and so there's an awareness that that's a part of this dynamic that, um, I'm of course telling the story because I think it's in the interest of public good to hear stories like this, but it is also my job. I'm, I'm reaping some form of reward by, let's call it what it is, exploiting this person's story, um, as part of this series that I make for my job. And so in awareness of all that, I, I try to work really hard to, to forge a level of trust with this person in hopes that they will open up to me and, and say the really personal things that I need them to say in order for the story to work, in order for the story to have moments of dynamic um, emotional intensity um, in order for it to feel like it's a story about the things the story is really about deep down, not just a superficial version of the story, the version of the story as told by the people who lived it with all the emotion and difficult to talk about factors that a story like this entails. Then you add on top of that the fact that in order to tell the story responsibly, you're not just having a conversation like that once. You're having it as many times as you need to have in order to get there. Not just with this particular source, but with all the other sources who are involved with the story. So let's say you're talking to um, somebody's grandmother, then you need to talk to 
the grandmother's husband, then you need to talk to the grandsons, then you need to talk to the cousins, then you need to talk to the person this hypothetical grandmother had an affair with and their descendants and whether or not they knew about this story. You have to repeat this very delicate process that I've just laid out many times over. And then you take all of this material that you've gathered from these people back to your studio or office or whatever it is. And you look at all the tape and then you have this challenge. And this challenge, in my opinion, doesn't get talked about enough by people who do long form narrative nonfiction, which is that you have to create a compelling propulsive narrative out of this material. And that means that, of course, you're not going to make anything up. You're not going to invent events that did not take place. You're not going to act as if things happened in a different chronological order than they did because it would be more dramatically expedient if time hadn't gone the way time went. You're not going to do those things, obviously. But there are compromises you're going to make in order to make it a compelling story for the listener to hear. Now, the best example of this that I can think of right now is you're probably not going to let one of your sources... There are shows that do this, but um, most don't. You're probably not going to let one of your sources just sit and talk unedited on tape for hours on end so that you hear their story in its fullest um, authentic version in terms of their perception of the story. That would not be compelling to listen to. Um, there would be no way of taking things out if the person said things that weren't true or misremembered things or whatever. So you're going to edit that and, and the person just might not be a compelling speaker. They might not be a natural storyteller. They might be somebody who goes on tangents and, and gets sidetracked by things that are interesting to them in the moment, but would not be interesting to a listener to that story who, um, who has just listened, downloaded this podcast episode, turned on this documentary because uh, they have some reason to believe it's going to be a good story. So as the steward of that story, you're going to cut this person's interview down to the choicest sound bites, which I generally find are the sound bites where they are um, not even necessarily telling the plot of what happened, but speaking in an emotional way about what they felt as something happened. Those are usually the clips that you're going to use from that person's interview. So how are you going to replace the parts where they're trying to tell the plot? Um, Slash, how are you going to account for a consistent, coherent plot when you've talked to all these different people who might have different versions of the plot? Well, you yourself are going to come in, and you're going to write the plot for you to tell in your own narration. And you're going to write the version of the plot that is true, of course, but you're also going to write it in the most expedient, exciting intriguing way. You're going to paint scenes in a way that you would paint scenes. Um, you're going to highlight certain characters, maybe because you imagine they might stand out in the listener's ear more. You're going to direct the listener's attention to 
certain elements of the story, certain dramatic moments in the story, because you know that will keep the listener listening and wanting to know where the story ends. And most of all, and this is where it gets really tricky, you're going to be the one who decides what the story is about. Because no matter what anybody thinks, a story presented simply as a story, by which I mean a series of events, <laughs> is not going to be compelling, ultimately. We listen to stories because we, especially nonfiction stories, because ultimately they are about something. Um, you know, let's take the example of a grandparent who had an affair that altered the course of a family's history. Um, we're not really there for the sordid details of the fact that there was this affair. What we're really there for is an understanding of what factors contributed to the level of dissatisfaction that this grandparent felt that caused them to stray outside the bounds of their marriage. And what can we learn from those factors about the way this person was misunderstood at the time? A fan has just come on in the co-working space. You are probably now hearing that in the background of the recording. I apologize. So, you as the storyteller are making a decision about what the big idea that you want this story to convey is. And sometimes that big idea is something that is reflected in the comments that you got from your sources, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes the folks who you've talked to about this story just see it as a story, just see it as a series of events that happened and led to other events. And they haven't really thought about the bigger picture of the implications of this story, what it says about their family and families in general, and maybe even, again, to stick with this grandparent example, you know, the way that we understand and contextualize the decisions made by baby boomers <laughs> when they got married. So you as a storyteller, your responsibility is to come up with that, to, to identify that bigger picture, to place this story in that larger context. And I think it is also your responsibility to then go back to your sources again. So here's another situation where you have to, you know, take this trust that you've earned and go back to them again and to say, you know, uh, this is what I think the story is about. How does that land with you? How does that resonate with you? And oftentimes, in my experience, the sources will say something like, oh, you know, I never thought about it that way. But yeah, I could see that. That feels right which honestly is maybe the best outcome you could hope for. Every once in a while, they'll say, yes, that's exactly it, and thank you so much for identifying that. That doesn't usually happen. More often, what will happen is they'll say, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, for me, it's just the, the story of my grandfather who ran off with a barmaid and ruined my grandmother's life. So you still, as a storyteller, like... You have to give this story a shape. You have to give it that larger context so that it feels like it's driving at something because that is your responsibility. As a storyteller, you've asked people to listen to slash watch slash read your story. It is incumbent upon you 
to make them feel like there is a bigger point to them sitting and contending with all the probably fairly harrowing details of this story. So you do that. You choose the clips from your sources. You write narration for yourself. Um, If it's a podcast, you then pick music that is going to evoke a certain set of emotions, a feeling, a tone. You add ambient sound, perhaps some sound design elements to try to make the the story come alive and feel like it's really happening in the person's ears. And you do all this work and and you pare it all down and you come out with this, say, 45-minute version of a story. And then you go onto your email and you send it to the people that you spoke to for the story, your sources. And in my experience... Nine times out of ten, you never hear anything from them. Just nothing. They don't reply. And this is the thing that I, I am wanting to talk about on this, this episode, is that, is that moment <laughs> of realizing that you're just not going to hear from them. Because it is a profoundly confusing moment. And I, I'm not, I want to be very clear, saying that I think I or anybody in my position deserves sympathy in that moment. Because as I said, these people have done you a great favor, a great service. They have offered their real lived experience to you for the purpose of narrative and meaning making. So they've already given you an extraordinary gift. So this this is not um, in any way to say that I think the storyteller in that position deserves sympathy. But I do want to unpack the loneliness that comes with that moment. Because what comes up for me instantly in those moments where I send the story out and I, I don't hear back from, from the people whose testimony has helped make the story what I feel is a sense that I have failed them, a sense that I have betrayed the trust that I worked so hard to build, a sense that I have made something bad, just qualitatively. I, I imagine that they listened to it and thought, well, this guy sounds like an idiot as a narrator, or um, why did he choose this music, or um, he tried to like make a joke there, that joke wasn't funny. I don't know. I imagine all sorts of things that they might be saying to themselves. So it makes me feel like I'm I'm bad at my job, which is to tell stories. If it is a story about betrayal, which almost all stories are in some form, right? I feel like I have re-betrayed them. They they sat and told me this story of betrayal, and, and they feel like in making the version of the story that I've made, I have betrayed them again. Because I, the other thing that I imagine is that they think, well, he got it wrong. He... He changed my, he, he used the story to say something that I don't think the story is about, which I, as a storyteller, almost certainly have. Because there's this awkward thing that happens when someone talks to you for a story, which is it's their story, but when they tell it to you, and it's your, your job to then craft it into a different form for your podcast or docuseries or New Yorker article, it becomes your story too, as the storyteller. 
it, it the the co- the collection of all the accounts that you are taking into account to create this piece that piece that you create it is your story it is made of other people's stories but it is also your story and in order to be a storyteller you have to step into a very warped sense of ownership over that collection of stories maybe a better word is you know you're a you're a steward of those stories and you want to be the best steward that you can but you also have to own the responsibility you've been hired to tell this story by people who expect you to deliver a a, a propulsive engaging meaningful story and that means it's your job to make the meaning your job to sculpt it in such a way that the meaning is delivered and that might have nothing to do with what someone who spoke to you for the story feels about their experience because they never saw it as a story for public consumption otherwise they would have told it themselves in some form and so there can be this feeling that you have betrayed somebody who has already been betrayed what a terrible feeling i just said that in a weirdly matter of fact way it is a, that is a terrible feeling to feel like you've done that to somebody especially because my whole goal in telling stories like this is to make the world feel like a less lonely place my whole goal in wanting to do work of this kind is to reflect back the emotional experience that i have had so many times of stories like this making me experience relief and gratification and connection because i i i hear a story where somebody feels things that i have felt in my own life and i think thank god it wasn't just me who had experienced betrayal like that who had wondered why somebody would cheat on their spouse who had wondered why somebody would steal somebody else's livelihood <laughs> steal the corpse of somebody's grandfather <laughs> um that's a more unique example from family ghosts but the goal of this work is to make the world feel like a less lonely place for the people who are listening to it yes to give them an engaging listening experience you know yes to um create craft a, a narrative that is like a fun distraction from the chaos and ultimate meaninglessness of life but it but it's also to to create this sense of connection to reduce isolation and it is so isolating as a storyteller to have gone through that process of making connection with your sources and then feel that upon sharing the final product with them you are not only once again isolated from them in the sense that you didn't know them before the process started but even more isolated because you were so recently in such emotional intimacy with them you had shared these intensely personal conversations 
And so now it's not just that you've gone back to a place where you don't know them. It's that you've been kicked out of their circle of trust. Again, that's the feeling that, that I have as a storyteller in those moments. And what's weird about it is you can't, at least I feel, like you can't go to them and say, hey, I, I couldn't help noticing that I never heard from you about this story. Can you tell me why? Because it, it feels like they've already sent you a pretty strong signal by not replying in the first place. And so it feels like to follow up and ask again, it puts them in a position of having to make you comfortable when you've already probably made them uncomfortable by virtue of the version of the, the story that you told. You don't want to add additional burden to them by making them feel like they have to take care of your emotions. So it, it sort of feels like if they don't write back, that that's just the way it's going to be, and you just have to let it sit out there and be unanswered. This, this question of, of where, you, where you let them down. Because I guess that's the other feeling, is, is that it feels like you let them down. They put their trust in you, and, and you let them down. That's what it feels like. And you, you never get to know why. You never get to know what it was that, whatever it is, disappointed them, made them not want to reply to you. And it, it, it's just very bizarre. It, it's a very bizarre headspace to be in. And I guess what's particularly strange about it is that obviously you're assuming that they feel, I don't know, disappointed, let down, whatever the case may be. But the fact that you don't get an answer means that you have to decide for yourself whether or not you did a good job with the story. And yeah, if you have an editor on the piece, they might tell you, yes, you did a great job. Don't worry about it. It's very common for people to not write back. Sure. You know, this is a, a storytelling professional telling you that you did a good job. Okay, fine. Maybe that means you did a good job. Maybe you get a nice response from the audience. Sure. That, that is an indication that you did a good job, but the goal, right? And maybe this isn't the goal. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe this isn't the goal. But the goal is to get that positive external feedback from people who are not intimately connected to the story. And also from the sources to hear like, not necessarily, yes, you got it right, but to hear from them, thank you for the care that you put into sharing this. Thank you for the care that you took with this material. And again, I, I don't want that to come across like you want them. I, I, I want the sources to thank me for doing them a service because again, they're the ones who have done me as a storyteller a service. What I want is just a signal from them that the way that I approached it felt respectful of their humanity And absent that, I, as storyteller, am left to think, well, 
the next time I have the opportunity to tell a story like this, should I approach it the same way? Is the way that I approached it respectful of their humanity? I hope so. But I don't know. And I will never know. And so I, I continue to make narrative decisions based on this, this odd sort of dead reckoning that comes, you know, it's not like it's completely uninformed. It comes from reading, watching, listening to other people's long-form narrative nonfiction work, showing the work to other professionals whose opinion I admire, uh, getting their feedback on it. Obviously, there are other ways to gather signals about how your approach is working. But there is this vacuum at the center And it is a lonely place, that vacuum. And I guess the reason I'm talking about this is because sometimes when I am at the center of that vacuum, when I have just released something new and have not heard from the people whose testimony informed that piece, it makes me want to stop doing it because I, I stop making work like that because I... I I'm worried that I'm hurting people when all I want this type of storytelling to do is help people. That's the core of it. And I don't know what to do <laughs> with those feelings. Um, but I do know that they come up every time I, I make something new. It happens every time. And I guess I wanted to talk about it uh, on the show today, which has really turned into kind of a downer, and I didn't really intend that to be the case. But there's, there's not really anything funny or light about this. It's a, it's a pretty serious issue. And it's something that I, I just don't hear a lot of people who do this kind of work talk about. I guess what I'm saying is, what does this make you think about? I'd love to know. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address of the show. Um, I'd love to know what this brings up for you. If you think I have um, missed something really important in my parsing through of my thoughts about it, um, or if you just want to tell me what you make of this jungle wallpaper <laughs> behind me, I would welcome that too. Maybe that's the only light, fun thing to come out of this episode is how absurd of a design choice <laughs> this co-working space has made. Um, but I do feel like I'm, I'm in the metaphorical jungle about this and looking for ways to, to find my way to a clearing. Maybe not out, but to a clearing. This has been the Friday show of the Midnight Disease, and uh, we'll keep doing these um, if you all find them interesting to listen to or watch. Thank you for listening and watching. Um, I'm Sam Dingman, and uh, thanks for being here. We'll be back next week with um, another great conversation on Wednesday and another Friday show next Friday. And until then... 
Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Keep driving.